Uh, Well, let's pray, and then we'll come to God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you uh, would speak to us now through your word. I pray that we would listen. I pray, Father, that you would give us a big, great, and awesome view of who you are tonight. Father, I pray that we would leave with thankful hearts for what you've done for us in the gospel and ready to live obedient lives in response. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, as I've been thinking about Deuteronomy 4 all week, uh, the question of obedience has been on my mind, particularly uh, the basis uh, of obedience. Uh, What is it that drives us to obey God? What is it that drives us to obey others? So as I've been thinking these thoughts, um, I decided to ask my daughter, Camille, what is it that drives her to obey me? Cammy, why do you think it's worth listening to Daddy and doing what I say? Well, that's easy. If I don't listen to you, I would just watch TV all day and my brain would turn to mush. <laughs> when pressed if there were any other reasons why she might want to listen and do what I say, She replied, no, that's all. (laughs) Now, at one level, I was actually quite happy with that answer. You see, there is something appropriate about a healthy fear of consequence, and then we'll see that in our passage tonight. But at another level, I kind of wished Cammie's response would have had a flavour of gratitude about it. I know I'm asking a lot from a, a five-year-old, but just imagine if Cammy had said to me, I listen to you, Daddy, because you're always so good to me. You and Mummy make my dinners, you drive me to school, you buy clothes for me. I'm just so grateful to be your child. Why wouldn't I trust you and do what you say? Of course I'm not going to watch too much TV. I trust you when you're telling me that'll turn your brain to mush. Now, I'm sure that's what she was thinking anyway. Um, but Deuteronomy chapter 4 is, is, in one sense, that kind of call to have an attitude of gratitude when it comes to obedience to God. Uh, in the following weeks, uh, Moses will be teaching the Israelites, and we'll be li- uh, listening as well, the importance of obeying the Ten Commandments and the laws that flow after them. But you see, before Moses gets there, he is determined to remind the Israelites that all of their obedience must first and foremost flow out of gratitude for the glorious privilege they enjoy as God's people. You see, they have received God's gracious revelation in the law. They have received his gracious relationship in his covenant, and they have received his gracious rescue in their exodus from Egypt. And that's really how we're going to break this uh, text up tonight, those three R's. But above all, Moses is saying, rejoice in your gracious privilege. Respond with grateful obedience. So first, Moses begins this final section of his sermon by pleading with Israel to trust God and obey his law so they might continue to live out the blessings of life in a relationship with God in the promised land. Notice in verse 1, Moses calls them to hear. 
to follow, to keep verse 2, the commands the Lord is giving them. These words sound desperate because they are. Israel's trust in and obedience to God is a matter of life and death. And you see, this has been painfully demonstrated in the last few weeks of their history. You see, something happens between the glorious victories of chapter 2 and 3 that we looked at last week and now. Uh, last week, we left feeling confident uh, about this second generation of Israel. Remember, they had uh, engaged in battle with Sihon and Og, the yellow and the green kingdoms. They had trusted God in the face of those giant enemies, and it had paid off. All the Amorite territory, the yellow and the green up there, that had all gone to Israel. But you see, look at what we're told Israel goes and does following that event. If you flip your Bible back to Numbers 25, 1 and 3, this is what we read. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. Now, wait a minute. Isn't this that new and faithful generation? The one that God had just shown his power and faithfulness to? Well, yes, actually. It goes on to tell us that the people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. See, last week we saw that God had been so faithful to Israel, and then they go and run into the arms of Moabite gods. It's kind of like that feeling you get when you hear of a husband who's been having all these adulterous affairs on business trips while his wife has done nothing but love him and look after the kids. Disgraceful. I mean, that kind of unfaithfulness just cries out for justice. And because God is just, that's what Israel gets. Later in Numbers 25, we read that 24,000 of the guilty offenders are destroyed by plague. And so we see the sad reality. The sin that lived in the previous generation actually never really leaves. It's kind of like Moses is saying, I know it's painful, but you need to stare that train wreck in the face and learn from it. There's a reason why some of you are standing here listening to me while others are dead and buried in the desert. Look at verse 3 and 4. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. You see, there's no sitting on the fence with God. Israel, you must either trust him and live or turn from him and die. Hear, follow, keep. But how were these Israelites who are so prone to wandering away from God going to keep holding fast to him and live his way? Well, I think Moses' rationale is simple. The only way obedience is going to trump disobedience is if these people are overwhelmed by God's gratefulness, but overwhelmed by gratefulness to God. Moses is wanting them to be so grateful for the privilege of belonging to God that the thought of rejecting him, betraying him, is just horrific in their mind. 
Rejoice in your great privilege. Respond with grateful obedience. And so he begins by reminding them of God's gracious revelation in the law. Point two on the outline, if you're following that. God's great gracious revelation. If Israel is going to trust God and willingly obey his law, well, they need to come to grips with the amazing privilege of having God's will revealed to them. Now, I suspect some of us here uh, don't often think of the law as a gracious gift from God. And we might actually get a little bit embarrassed about the law. We don't like all the do's and the don'ts. But notice that Moses isn't embarrassed. He sees it as a great thing, as a source of true wisdom and righteousness, as the evidence of God's nearness to Israel. And you see, Moses wants Israel to feel that as well. And so in verses 5 to 8, it's almost like Moses is saying, I just want you all to close your eyes for a moment and think of a future where you're now living in the promised land that God is giving you. Now keep your eyes closed and just consider what it would be like if you all actually lived by this law. Imagine what a great nation you'd be. Imagine how wise and righteous you would be compared to the nations who don't know God. Think about what they would say of you. Oh, they'll look at you and say, verse 6, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. They will see the righteousness and justice God law, God's law brings to a community, verse 8. They'll see it and think, we want what they have. Israel, do you see how gracious God has been in revealing his will to you? You see what a privilege it is to have God's law and to live by it. See, your God has cared enough about you not to leave you in the dark about what it is to please him and to follow him. See, in revealing his law to his people, God had revealed himself. He had come near to his people. Look at verse 7. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. And you see, it's actually a terrible and, uh, thing to be in the dark about who God is, about what it means to follow him. Now, often I think it causes panic. You know, is there a God out there? Can we know him? Are we offending him? How do I know if he accepts me? Uh, in my reading for this uh, passage this week, I came across an ancient Sumerian prayer that has been dated back into the 7th century BC. Now, I'm, I'm going to read you this prayer and just listen to the way uh, this pagan person uh, prays to the gods and note the fear and uncertainty. O oh my God, many are my wrongs, great my sins. O oh goddess, many are my wrongs, great my sins. I do, not know, I do not know what wrong I have done. I do not know what sins I have committed. A God, whoever he is, has exoriated me. A goddess, whoever she is, has laid misery on me. When I wept, they would not draw near. When I would make a complaint, no one would listen. O oh God, whoever you are, turn towards me, I implore you. O oh goddess, whoever you are, turn towards me, I implore you. See, how sad is that prayer? But you see, that is life when you don't know the God of Israel. See, this poor bloke is certain that the gods are angry with him, 
but has no idea which God. He's certain that his sin has caused their anger, but he has no idea which sins made them angry. He is certain that he must do something, that something must be done to placate their wrath against him, but he has no idea what that is. And you see, I'm willing to bet that there are many people today who kind of live like this. Maybe even one or two of you out there tonight, unsettled by not knowing who God really is and what he wants from you or what he wants to give you. Well, keep listening because there is great hope and certainty for those who come to trust in the God of the Bible. See, to to belong to the true God who reveals himself to you is a great privilege. Rejoice in your gracious privilege, Israel. Respond with grateful obedience. But there's a second basis for Israel's obedience. God's gracious relationship, verses 9 to 31. See, if Israel is going to trust God and obey his law, well, they need to be captivated once again by the glory of the fact that the living and true God has entered into relationship with them the sinners that they are proving to be. So Moses helps Israel feel once again the glory of that covenant relationship with God. Uh, I remember my wedding day and how wonderful it was, Uh, not just because the day ran smoothly, not just because Andrew Wirt did a good job at catering, but it's because that was the day that I heard the voice of the woman I adore say to me, I pledge myself to you. That was the day Ruth entered into covenant with me. I looked at her, as you can see, and thought, this woman loves me. This woman chose me. Now, looking at that picture on my desk reminds me of the great privilege I have of being in covenant with Ruth. It reminds me how dumb it would be to scorn that privilege and ignore the promises that I have made to love and cherish her. But let's be honest, even the best husband or wife will disappoint us. But you see, what a greater privilege it is to be in covenant relationship with the almighty God, to hear his voice say, I pledge myself to you. And I want you to pledge yourself to me. That's actually what goes on when God saves Israel and enters into covenant with them at Mount Sinai, which is what Moses will refer to as Horeb. Moses is saying to Israel in verses 9 to 13, remember the glory of that day and rejoice over the great privilege of belonging now to the living God. I mean, look at what he says in verse 10. Remember the day. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. Israel had stood before God and lived. Though they didn't see God's form, he had come to them in the blazing fire of the mountain, the black cloud, the deep darkness, verse 11. But God had kept them safe in that covenant moment from his holy presence. 
In that awesome moment, he declared to you his covenant, verse 13, the Ten Commandments which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and the laws you were to follow in the land that you were crossing the Jordan to possess. Israel had been given an unthinkable privilege here of covenant relationship with the Almighty God. Rejoice in your gracious privilege. Respond with grateful obedience. But there's a warning of God's right jealousy within this covenant relationship as well, isn't there? A warning against idolatry, verses 15 to 28. Now see, just hold that glorious moment of the covenant of Sinai in your head for a moment. Now just imagine if you were to able to travel back in time to just after that glorious moment had happened and you found a random Israelite after that event and you, you said to this Israelite, so what do you reckon we do now? Go make a golden calf and worship it? What should we do, do you think? Um, oh, hang on, let's just fear those giants in the promised land because they're a bit scary. Or what do you reckon we should do? Should we go over to Moab? and worship some of their gods and, and commit sexual sin against God? Well, you can shortly imagine the response of an Israelite who had just seen that, uh, that presence of God on the mountain. What are you, crazy? Didn't you just see that mountain burning? The smoke? Didn't you hear God's voice? I mean, I'm still in shock. For some reason, the Almighty God wants to be in relationship with us. I mean, who can possibly compete with him? Who else is there in the world that we would want to be united to? Do you think I'm just going to walk away from that privilege? Do you think I'm stupid enough to betray the one who can turn a mountain into blazing fire in an instant? Well, it might come as a shock to some of you who aren't familiar with the story of the Israelites, but all three of those situations had happened since that day. And actually, that's the confronting thing that we get here about the human heart, that something like that could be experienced and witnessed, and we still walk away. We're not better than Israel. We're human, just like they were. See, Israel should be filled with wonder that God, who knows her capacity for sin, still wants to commit himself to her. Uh, our capacity to forget the glory of being in relationship with God and follow a corrupt path is actually terrifying. And that's why Moses will say a couple of times in these verses, watch yourselves. You see, the biggest threat to Israel is not those giant enemies on the other side of the Jordan River in the Promised Land. The biggest threat to Israel is what's in here, in their sinful hearts. See, look at verse 9. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Look again in verses 15 and 16. You saw no form on, uh, of any kind the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb 
out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourself an idol. You're going to be tempted, says Moses. Uh, You'll look at the way other nations create glorious images of animals, birds and people to bow down to, and you'll be enticed to do the same. Verse 18, you, you will stand outside at night and just like the other nations, you'll, you'll be overcome with the grandeur of the starry hosts above your head and you'll be enticed to worship it. So watch yourselves. And it's very interesting that, that Moses doesn't just simply tell them that that is wrong and don't do it. You see, he knows that for Israel... They are, going to be need to, they are going to have to be captured by a better object of worship. And that's what he's actually giving them with this glorious picture, this reminder of God's covenant with them at Horeb. See, so look at verse 20. But as for you, the Lord uh, took you out and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. Uh, Another translation is possession, treasured possession. See, Moses is saying, Israel, keep coming back to these two options. Do you want to live for a useless image that looks cool, has no expectations, but is completely useless? Or do you want to live for the almighty God who saved you from the hell of slavery and made you his very own precious possession? And you see, to reject the creator in favour of the creation is not just stupid, it's downright dangerous. For Israel particularly, it would be the act of ultimate betrayal against her covenant partner that would bring about God's judgment. In verses 21 to 22, Moses reminds them for the third time in chapters 1 to 4 of his pain of coming under God's judgment. As we heard last week, in his exasperation with Israel, Moses had done what God said not to do and as a result was barred from the promised land. Moses knows that it's no small thing to break faith with God and that's why he pleads with them again in verses 23 to 24. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Uh, There have been a couple of times recently when our two-year-old daughter has found a packet of matches that we use to light the stove. Yes, Parent of the Year Award is not going to me. Um, Somehow she's found them and... On the couple of times that I've seen her with these matches, I've taken them off and given her that clear message, if you play with fire, you're going to get burnt. And you see, the the message is kind of the same here. If you mess around with God, if you break his covenant, if you betray him, if you turn your back on him, you're going to get burnt. Now, I suspect... When some of us uh, hear the idea of God being a jealous God, we might cringe a little bit. That kind of sounds a bit like God's a bit insecure. But when you think about it, there's actually something very appropriate 
about jealousy in certain contexts. Take, for example, a marriage context. Jealousy, I think, reflects love and commitment. So imagine if your beloved spouse just ran off with another person. I bet you wouldn't be thinking, man, that's a bit of a shame. I kind of liked that person. No, you would become rightly jealous and angry at that betrayal. Now, if we can recognise the rightness of, of that in human covenants, how much more would the holy God? He is committed to his people and he wants his people to be committed to him and him alone. It's interesting, Moses in verses 5 to 8 gave Israel a picture of future blessing should they obey God's law in the land that he's giving her. But now, in verses 25 to 28, he gives them a picture of what it will be like should they not obey, turn from him and commit idolatry. And you see, it's like Moses is saying in verses 25 to 28, I want you to close your eyes again. Now this time, imagine a future in the land God is giving you where instead of trusting God and obeying his word, you descend into corruption. You forget how the gracious God has been faithful to you, you forget how he pledged himself to you in covenant, and you turn from him. You make idols, you start worshipping them. Well, let me tell you how the rest of that picture is going to play out. God's righteous anger will burn against you, verse 25. You'll be destroyed, verse 26. God will kick you out of the promised land and you will live among the nations who have conquered you, verse 27. And there as captives in foreign lands, you will have all the time you like worshipping those useless idols that cannot see, hear, eat or smell, verse 28. So imagine being one of the Israelites, eyes closed, listening to that message from Moses. I think you'd be devastated at the picture that he's painting. How horrible to, to betray such a faithful God. How terrifying to think of facing his jealous wrath. But you see, Moses isn't telling them to open their eyes yet, is he? Because the future he describes still carries with it the hope of shocking mercy. Did you notice that in verses 29 to 31? What does it say? But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you're in distress and these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Look at your good God, Israel. Even if you and your descendants are unfaithful to your covenant promises, God will not be unfaithful to his covenant promises. There is always hope for mercy for those who call on the Lord. Who better to belong to? Who better to be obedient to? Rejoice in your gracious privilege respond with grateful obedience. But there's a third, a very big reason that serves as Israel's basis for obedience, and that's God's gracious rescue. Uh, if Israel is going to trust God 
and obey him in the promised land, they need to be captivated once again by the magnitude of the one true God who had powerfully rescued them from Egypt. Uh, Along with my wedding photo is a picture frame uh, displaying my successful completion of a Master of Divinity. But I've kind of been reminded as I've read particularly this section in Deuteronomy 4, just how ridiculous that title is. You see, a master's level of study theoretically means that the student has mastered, has a mastery over a specific field of study. But what if my study is God? Can I ever actually say I've mastered the divine? In fact, what actually happens to you at Bible College is that you get mastered by the divine. You come to see with clarity just how little you actually grasp of God and his grace to us in the Lord Jesus. Moses, I think, is trying to help Israel come to grips with God's bigness in these last verses. The Lord is God and there is no other. No one can match him. No one can top what he pulled off in Egypt. See, look at what Moses says in verses 32 and following. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have and lived? They haven't, have they? Or has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing signs, wonders, war, by a mighty hand or an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? We've never heard of a God like that among the nations, have you? See, remember, Israel, you were slaves in the most powerful nation on earth. It was awful. You were abused, you were mistreated. Pharaoh ordered the infanticide of all your newborn sons. You had no joy, you had no hope. But then God saved you, he rescued you. There was no uprising. You didn't lift a finger in that battle. But God crushed your oppressors. God led you out, God made you his people. God is now giving you a land of your own, Show me a God who has ever done that. You see, why is God so kind to Israel? The incident at Beth Peor that we talked about earlier tells me that they didn't really deserve it, ultimately. But Moses simply says that it's because God had set his love on Israel and chose them. Look at verse 37. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. And you see the same message again in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Because the Lord loved you. God rescues Israel simply because he loves them and is faithful to his promises to them. Israel, there is only one true God and he has rescued you because he loves you. Let that soak in, Israel. Look at verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. 
Keep his decrees and commands, which I am giving you today, so that, may, though, so that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land your God gives you for all time. Don't toss away the life and blessing God promises to you for some other God, which is no God at all. No, rejoice in your great privilege. Respond with grateful obedience. You see, Israel was a privileged people. They had experienced God's gracious revelation, his gracious relationship, and his gracious rescue. They would rejoice in that gracious privilege and respond with grateful obedience to all the laws and commands that Moses is about to teach them. But tragically, as many of us know, Israel's history throughout the rest of the Old Testament is marked by the two things that Moses warns of in Deuteronomy 4, forgetfulness and corruption, idolatry. See, time and again, Israel betrays God and worships other false gods, and eventually they are kicked out of the promised land, scattered among the nations, just as God had warned them. If Israel is to remember, <coughs> sorry, Israel is reminded to us that the human heart is dreadfully corrupt. It does not want to recognize God's grace and live under God's rule. But you see, thankfully, as the Bible story unfolds, we see God acting in an ultimate expression of grace to do something to fix our heart problem. See, in sending his son Jesus, God acts with power and grace that surpasses all that we see here in Deuteronomy 4. In Jesus, God reveals himself to us in the flesh. In Jesus, God establishes a new relationship with people that is eternal and never compromised by our sin or weakness. In Jesus, God rescues us from the punishment of our sinful hearts. In an act of tremendous power, love and grace, Jesus dies on a cross for us. He dies to forgive our sins. And because God raised him from the dead, we can be confident that if we trust our life to Jesus, we will be raised too. We don't obey Jesus to win our salvation. Our obedience flows out of the grateful appreciation of the salvation he wins for us. And I think that's what Paul is saying when he writes in Romans 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Followers of Jesus rejoice in their gracious privilege and respond with grateful obedience. But you see, if you're here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that God has been gracious to you also. He has revealed himself to you in Jesus you can enter into an eternal relationship with him through Jesus, and you can be rescued from your sin through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. Will you put your faith in him? 
But for those of you who are already followers of Jesus, I think this passage calls us to remember the gracious privilege of simply belonging to Jesus. You see, we need to remember that it is actually a privilege to belong to Jesus, despite what we might hear in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can feel a little bit weird about being a Christian. You know, when people might say to you, really? You believe what the Bible says about heaven and hell? Really, you believe what the Bible says about miracles? Really, you believe what the Bible says about sexuality? We saw that recently in the Israel Falau fiasco, didn't we? Sometimes we can feel like belonging to Jesus is not so much a privilege, but a kind of slight embarrassment when we're with our friends and family who don't follow him. And if you add to that the fact that we have forgetful and idolatrous hearts that long for things that Jesus says is wrong, well, again, that feeling of privilege erodes even further. And that's actually why we need to keep coming back to the privilege of belonging to Jesus. You see, if you're a Christian, you can truthfully say that you know the living God. If you're a Christian, you can truthfully say that you are loved by God, that he sent his son for you. If you're a Christian, you can say, I belong to the one who promises, promises me eternal life in his kingdom. But remembering requires effort. Now, I've discovered this in marriage recently. Uh, Ruth and I made the recent decision to make it our goal to say one thing uh, that we are thankful for in the other person each day. Uh, it's a way of sort of reminding you that you're actually happy to be married to the other person. It's a good thing. Spurs you on. Um, and I've actually noticed the difference it's made. I've noticed the difference it makes when we don't do it. You see, you want to serve someone when you remember their worth. And having reflected on this passage all week, I've decided that that's probably a helpful thing to do with God as well. Each day, taking the time to thank him for one aspect of his grace that I have in the gospel. And I think that as I do that, a response to grateful obedience to his word will actually flow much more willingly. Uh, we are about to look at the Ten Commandments in the weeks to come and the rest of the law in the, the weeks beyond that. And I'm sure that there are going to be moments when you and I have our hearts convicted by God's word. Hear about some way that we are actually not living in obedience to what God says. Well, what is going to drive us to make the change when we hear that? Well, I think we need to take a note out of Moses' book here and keep coming back to the privilege of belonging to God now in Jesus. See, in Jesus, we have that gracious revelation, that gracious relationship, and that gracious rescue. As a people who belong to him, let us rejoice in our gracious privilege, and in the weeks to come, respond with grateful obedience. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that you are so gracious to us, Lord, that you sent your Son to die on a cross for our sins. Thank you that it is the work of Jesus alone that saves us. 
Father, in the weeks to come, help us remember that we do have a gracious privilege in belonging to Jesus and spur our hearts to respond with grateful obedience to his word. Amen.